the Sufis didn't didn't have any agenda behind their actions. They were they have a clear intention and a clear course of action. And when they were defeated, they accepted the reality, and that's it. What we have now is a very foreign and in a way very French way of, of being, that of fighting for ideologies. Welcome to the New Nomos Podcast. I'm Abdallah Dutton, inviting you to join me on this journey of discovery to define what the new nomos is and what we need to get there. I wanted to look into the idea on how accepting defeat can sometimes be the most heroic act. And it just so happened that my brother-in-law, Abdul Qadir Harkasi, who is half Moroccan, half Spanish, is currently completing his master's thesis on the subject of the Sufi resistance in the Maghrib from the 1800s up until the mid-20th century. Now, this episode is slightly different in the sense that it's more of a historical narrative, but I think there are so many key learnings that can be taken away from the events that happened in Morocco and where it has led Morocco to now. Now, instead of just taking the events at face value, I felt it was important for us to go right back to the beginning of the French colonial expansion into North Africa and into the Maghreb, and from there, understand the importance of the decisions that were made by the Sufis in the 1930s. This is a very important narrative and very important events for us to know to make sense of the time that we're in now and what is happening around us. So, without much further ado, I present to you episode 4, The Sufi Resistance in the Maghrib, on how accepting defeat can be the most heroic act. It is in 1830 when the French come into North Africa to conquer, and that is the, the case of Algeria, according to what I've read and I know about a, a savage invasion. They like totally went in. There was no, uh, hardly any diplomacy. It was just war. That is what they wanted. And they just came in hard. This is about 90 years before they came into Morocco. And, and once they came into Algeria, they started to spread. Senegal, Mauritania, Tunisia... And the last piece of the puzzle was Morocco, which only materialized for the French in 1912. But before that, there was a lot of influence. There was a lot of pressure. And because of the political and the geographical location of Morocco, it was very important, not only for the French, but also for the Spaniards, also for the, French, for the British and the Germans. They were all trying to um, get a grasp on Morocco. First of all, they came in with commerce, with trading. There was there was um, wars. There was two important wars of the Moroccans against the French. One was defending Emir Abdel Kader Al Jazeera, who had been defeated and he fled into Morocco. And then the Moroccan Sultan Moulay Abdel Rahman defended him by, by waging war against France, which was a big defeat. I mean, the f- defeat 
in, in this political context is not only having lost the war, but was all, also having to sign agreements in which you give concessions, that is trade uh, and commercial co concessions to the French, and you have to pay sanctions for having incurred in, 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 in costs on the other part. So that, that, that is one of the, of the, of the um, I don't want to give a lot of dates and details and, and names and stuff. And the other one was Mor Spain. Spain, in the, they came to the north, the Moroccan king fought them, was defeated, and for the Spanish to withdraw, he, the king had to sign a treaty in which he had to pay a big sum of money uh, as, as a sanction and other concessions. So Morocco was, at this time, this is the, the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, totally bankrupt because of the sanctions. They had to ask for loans to Paris, to London, and all the, the resources were shipped away. So they couldn't really uh, do much. The, the also politically, the sultans at the time, Moulay Abdelaziz, he was a young sultan. He became, he became head of, of the Moroccan government, Alawi dynasty, when he was 16. He was very young. The French understood how to impress him, and he kind of was led by them. I don't doubt that he would have tried to do his best to get a strong hold of his country and defend his country, but he wasn't successful at all. Now, his brother... Mulay Abdel Hafid started a movement in Marrakesh. He was the Khalifa of his brother. So Khalifa here means representative of the Sultan in Fez. So the Sultan was in Fez, the capital. His Khalifa, his brother, was in Marrakesh and seeing that his brother couldn't fight the French, couldn't do anything about the French and was kind of friendly to the French, he started a movement to dethrone his brother and take power and uh, fight back the French, try to, to remove him. And the supporters of, of, of uh, Moulay al Hafid in, Mar in Marrakesh were a, a Sufi Sheikh, Sheikh Mohammed ibn Abdel Kabir al Kitani of the Kataniya Tariqa in, in Fes, and the Qaid, the governor, Al Madani al Glawi. He was a chief of a tribe, an important governor of, of the Marrakesh region. What was the French interest in North Africa, like specifically? The, 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 the French came into North Africa. Off the back of the French Revolution, 1830, they came into Algeria. The French Revolution was 40 years before that. So they come with this ideological, strong ideological sense that they have now developed from tradition into what they understood as modernity, and this new modern way of understanding existence. And they came, according to their documents, to civilize the barbaric Berbers and Arabs and, and Muslims. Now, that was the ideological war that the French came with. But on the other hand, Africa is and, and was a very rich continent that was able to produce a lot of goods, raw materials that France in its territory couldn't. So by expanding, that was the, 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 the main colonial project was to gain more wealth through appropriating lands and peoples and, and trade routes and so on. That sounds a lot like American foreign policy in the Middle East. I mean, we're bringing the world democracy and like, yeah, okay. You see, it's not, nothing has changed. I mean, the t time passes, but the same principles still apply. There, there's nothing new in that sense. You mentioned 
the two brothers and the one brother uh, basically organizing a, 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 a movement to dethrone the other brother? Yes, yes, yes. yes. The, 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 the Sultan was in, in Fez right. and his brother who was fighting against, or he was moving against him and he actually fought against him, uh, was in Marrakesh. And he was backed by, by many ulama uh, of Fez specifically and others of Marrakesh and a Sufi Sheikh, an important Sufi Sheikh that appears in, in most books of history uh, was um, Sheikh Mohammed Ibn Abdel Kabir Al-Katani who supported the, the uh, Mulay Abdel Hafid against uh, Mulay Abdel Aziz um, in, in, in this what they call the Hafidiyah movement. Mulay Abdel Aziz abolished Zakat in Morocco in exchange because he wasn't bringing much back in exchange of a different tax so that uh, he could raise more money in his intention to renovate the administration of Morocco and to renovate the, the military uh, power of, of Morocco. And this was, was, this was hated by the ulama. He, he brought in what they call non-Quranic taxation. Um, it has nothing to do with the deen. It was, it was his, his way of raising more money. Once he did that, the ulama said, well, we, we can't um, take it any longer. And then they all supported this other movement uh, in Marrakesh. It's almost exactly the same as the European foreign policy in the Ottoman Empire at the same time in those mid-1800s with the Tanzimat. Mm -hmm. Yes, precisely. Where there were specific things that they targeted, and one of them being zakat and the removal of zakat. because these powers understood and saw the power of of zakat i mean there's a beautiful thing that i read on the ottoman empire and it was it was talking about at the time of the height of the ottoman empire at its pinnacle they said that the zakat that was taken in istanbul right now one has to understand that this, that the Istanbul was one of the wealthiest cities on the planet. So, it, just imagine the amount of zakat that was being, like, that was being taken within the city. Now, there's the specific categories that of, of people that are, are able to receive the zakat. There's seven or eight. Now, in order for those conditions to be reached. They had to send the zakat to the furthest reaches of the empire because there just wasn't anybody to receive it within the city. You know, not in Istanbul, not in the surrounding areas of Istanbul. I mean, it had to literally be carted from to, like by camel or by horse or by whatever it was in those times to the furthest reaches of the empire just so they could find people that were eligible to receive the zakat now what does that say about the state of the ottoman empire you know because it wasn't just the zakat that was being taken it was also the whole empire run on okaf so the wealthy elite put endowments down in waqfs and okaf you know and to the point where there were times that um they were saying that like people, wealthy families or wealthy individuals wanted to, uh, they wanted to put their wealth into Okaf. 
but they had they didn't know what what gap there was so they came up with these like amazing works to there was one that i was told it was that there was a family that created a wakf basically for old horses so traditionally an old horse would have been killed you know just knackered and and, and chopped up and whatever um and they created a wakf just to look after the horses that had passed their kind of um workable life they were works for servants that broke their master's um crockery so if they dropped a plate and it broke they could go to this wakf and get another plate and replace it i mean it's just it's absolutely it's fascinating even even migrating birds that were delayed in the migration and couldn't carry on because the weather had changed there were wakfs to create houses for these birds to shelter in and to be fed while the the the, the season had passed wow waiting for the next migrating season so wow so now the the, the ottomans were, were incredible um in in in, in, the, in the very specific and subtle things that we, i mean we still don't think about today but beautiful so beautiful specifically about the the awqaf when the french came into north africa they they wanted to get hold of the land but a lot of the land was they were wakfs and they, were, uh, they could not buy them. Mm. They, wanted to, they wanted to use this land to produce crops to take back to, to and sell, but they couldn't because the, the Muslims had established a large uh, wakf system that enabled anyone to buy it. And, and in all the produce was, was fisabilillah. One of the first things the French had to do was to dismantle the wakf and was very difficult. They were offered a lot, uh, a big, big sums of money to to the families in charge of the wakfs, and they will be rejected. They say, "Well, no, this is this, this doesn't belong to us anymore. This is Allah's wakf Allah. for Allah and for the people of Allah, and we can't and we can't buy it." Mm. So, so the French, you can't, you can't sell it. I mean, so the French had to work on on trying to change the legal category of the wakf so that they could purchase it and. And destroy it all, but um, it wasn't easy for them. And the, and the Muslims showed to to have been very how do they say very def- defensive of of the wakfs. Of course, yeah. So I mean, I'm just seeing this kind of correlation between European foreign policy in North Africa and European foreign policy in the Ottomans at that same time, like the mid 1800s, where they and they understood that the foundations of the strength of the society. And the strength of these great empires and nations rested on the institution of zakat, and by extension, the alkaf. And they saw that as a, as a as a something that strategically they had to destroy. Yeah, yeah. A lot of uh, madrasas, the students, the teachers, the um, the imams, the qadis. Uh, were all paid from the the Al-Qaf. Yeah, amazing. Everything was paid. I mean, no, I mean, you say everything, but the, there wasn't a welfare system. What the the European seeks is that welfare system. The government pays institutions or pays the, the people themselves had created through their wealth a, a basic uh, foundation for the whole of the society to stand on it. 
and it, it wasn't the state. It wasn't the government who had created this. It was it was it was the people. It was it was those wealthy families who had mm. get, given away their own wealth for Allah's sake to to help their society. It, 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 yeah, it wasn't the sultan's uh, waqf, if you like. Mm. The first university in the world, the Karawiyin of Fes, was built and was paid for uh, Fatima Fihriya, who was a woman from Qairawan, who gave everything that was needed for this uh, institution to be built and who, who became the center of, of knowledge of, of the whole of Northwest Africa. Amazing, eh? Amazing. So the French had come into Morocco. They've have the ear of Muley Abdelaziz, and through that, trying to impose kind of this ideological revolution within Morocco. And we have the brother Muley Abdelhafid, who has seen this and the risk of this, and has now started a movement to dethrone his brother and he, and he succeeds he fights his brother army back with french cannons he wins that uh, battle and he takes his the throne in fence his brother had fled to rabat to the protection of the french and he becomes the, the new sultan of of the alawi dynasty of morocco and then uh, the, the ulama all go to pay, to to give bayah to to him but it was um it was a conditional bayah, meaning that the sultan had to uphold about 14 conditions for the bayah to be valid. Among them was that he would push away the French, would not negotiate with the French, would uh, move away all the French advisors. And already, and, and this is very interesting, the, already the French, the, or the French Revolution's ideology had filtered through the ulama, with the Salafi modernist movement, and not all of the ulama, but some of the ulama, and one of the, uh, and one of the, uh, the conditions was that the king would acknowledge the sovereignty of people and create a parliament. Mulay al Hafid rejected creating a parliament and ignored the ideological sovereignty of the people once he took the government on. So you mentioned that the, the Bayer or the allegiance had 14 conditions, right? Yeah. Who imposed those conditions on who? who? So, so, so um, I mean, the, the ulama had come to give Bayer, but they had gathered before to say, well, we give Bayer to this new sultan if he um, promises to fulfill these conditions. Wow. Otherwise, we, we will not acknowledge him. Wow. Wow. And, 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 and um, it is very important for a sultan to have the, the, the backing of, of, the, of, of, the, of the ulama, um, as well as the, the important people. I mean, he did not rule on his own. Mm. He, his, his force was based on his agreements with the different sections of, of society, with the nobles, with the, with the ulama, with the Sufi sheikhs, um, that's where his power rested. I mean, that's true leadership in the Islamic sense, is that you rule in consultation. Precisely. Now, Murad Hafid is now the, the new sultan, 
and he realizes that he, his game is over. He had he had hardly had started when he he did not have access to the to the treasury. The French had locked that up against him, and they said, "Well, if you are the sultan, then you have to agree to our terms. Otherwise, we we won't release your your capital." So how did they get? How did the French get access to the treasury through Abdelaziz? Exactly, precisely. Yeah. So he had just handed it over to them, or what? Just... Well, I mean, firstly, Morocco at the time was struggling financially, as I mentioned. It was a lot of debt. Ah, okay. He had to still try to negotiate his position with the the powers that were in place before him. So it's the money strings that they were playing with the international debt. Okay. Okay. Now, what I, I do admire, and he is very maligned in, in, in the history books, I, I do admire Mulay al-Hafid because he, did, he was, I think, was very sincere when he took his position. And he was very sincere once he realized he couldn't do anything. So now it wasn't a, a fight, a military fight. Now it was a negotiation fight. It was a diplomatic fight. And now he had to find a way around the French with the French in to try and kind of liberate the, the country from them. If you remember, I mentioned this Sufi Sheikh who supported... Sheikh Kitani. Yeah, Kitani, yes. Sheikh Al-Kitani, when he saw the Mulay Abdul Hafid, started to speak to the French, negotiate with the French, he turned his back against the, the Sultan. And... Um, Decide, I think he decided then to, to create a new movement against the Sultan, spreading rumors in, in the city of Fez, kind of humiliating the, the, the Sultan to, to the extent that the Sultan uh, executed him. Sheikh al Kitani? Yes, executed Sheikh al Kitani. From this execution, the Tariqa, the Kitani Tariqa, when the French took over fully in 1912, the Kitanis hating the, the crown, the Moroccan Alawi dynasty, sided the French against the, the king. So it's a very interesting dynamic. So they, they were fully, I mean, the Tariqa was against the French, and once this incident, this execution incident happened, they lost all interest in their fight against the French, and they sided the French fully. Wow, okay. His son, the son of Sheikh Mohammed al-Kitani, uh, Sheikh Abdel Hay al-Kitani, he was a full ally of the French. So if you allow me to go back now to see the, the, the Sufi military struggle against the foreigners, because th that will feed into the narrative of why all the Sufis were accused of being collaborators. So just I just want to, just so I'm clear as I go through this, are you pro Abdel Hafid? Or are you pro Al-Kitani? Or are you pro both of them? No, um, what I think happened is that Sheikh Al-Kitani did not realize the situation fully. He was moved by this idea that the Muslims should always fight the, enemy, the, 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 the invaders. Whereas Sultan Al-Hafid was in the position of power. He understood power. He understood his situation. He understood that there was nothing to do. You couldn't do anything. And then he accepted his reality. Whereas Sheikh Al-Kitani fought against the true events that were going on at the time. Recently, 
came across some uh, other letters that Mulay Hadir Hafid wrote to the Sufi jihadis of Morocco. And they were truly moving letters in which he says to uh, uh, Mulay Ahmed Hiba, who was waging the last big Sufi jihad in Marrakesh, he said to him, you have my full support to go ahead with this. My, my hands are tied in the city and I can't do anything, but, but, but I give you all my, my support to move against, against these people. So if, if you see what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is that him personally and him as the head of the government could not do anything. He did hate the French as much as any other Moroccan did and, and would have wished to have done more, but he couldn't. He supported those who did, but 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 was really in tune with his mo- with his time. I would say he was really in tune with his time. So he supported the men that were resisting. So let's let's now touch on the men that were resisting. The modern idea of Sufism is is I would say is this dialectic in which the Sufi is the, is is a mystic individual who seeks. Um, only spiritual gains and retreats from the world, from dunya. He does, has nothing to do with it. He does dhikr and he only seeks the hereafter. That is what the most common popular understanding of, of it, of Sufism. Now, the reality is a very different uh, reality. The Sufis were always engaged in the politics of their time. And when the the central government or the or what was the, the sultan or the or the khalifa was unable to act, they were immediately in the battlefield fighting the, the invaders or they were helping the, the, the social structures. They were mediating between factions. They were fighting each other. They were, as I say, they, they weren't always hidden in their zawiyas away from the world. That only happens really when everything else is fine, when the sultan has power and, and justice is uh, balanced, when, when, when the Sufis then dedicate most of the time to, to do dhikr. Other than that, history shows both in the African examples as in the Eastern Asian examples in the Ottoman Empire, before the Ottoman Empire even, and, and as I say, in, 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 in the north of Africa, the, 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 the Sufi militant, uh, uh, which is why I call the, the, the Sufi warriors in my writings, in Morocco, were there with the Marabitun, were there with the Muahidun, the Almohads, uh, or I don't know how it's called in English, Almohades in Spanish. Muahidun and the Murabitun were initially Sufi tarikas who moved from the south of Morocco up north through Morocco and to Spain, and they established, especially in Morocco, their strong dynasties. And the main calling for these people were fighting innovation, what they call innovation, and but, but also fighting the Portuguese who came into Morocco in the Middle Ages. The Portuguese had conquered Tangier, Rabat, uh, Agadir, so all the Atlantic coast, and they created these posts in the coast to defend the country from, from the invaders. And there were Sufis, they, they, they were militarily prepared tariqas who defended the coast of Morocco from invasion. When the French came, 
there were other tariqas who were military tari tariqas. In the south of Morocco was uh, Ma'il Ainain, who was originally Mauritanian, but who had fought strongly against the French in the south of uh, Morocco and Mauritania, but was pushed north every time and, until he established himself in, in the Sous region, in Tiznit, and gave bayah to the Sultan in, in Fez. To about four or five of the Moroccan sultans, he, he gave bayah. And so he fought on their behalf against the French. And he was the sheikh of the Qadiri Fadli Tariqa in, in the south of Morocco. There were other Tariqas in the Casablanca Rabat uh, region, what we call the, the Shawiya, who were Tariqas who, and this is very interesting, who the, the, the model was all. Yeah, let, let me see if I can explain this properly. Who the Zawiya model was moved a, a, around military practices. There were three types of, of military tariqas in this region of the Shawiya. There were the horse rider Sufis, whose mm. sheikh was Sheikh Al Khail, the horse riding master. Then there were the uh, sword based tariqas. Who Sheikh was the swordman master? Okay, it all appears in the in the French uh, archives. It's all documented by the French. Wow! And the, the Sheikhs of or the Tarikas who used gunpowder, who used rifles. So what I, what I mean with with this is that they the Sheikh of the Tarika was the master, the instructor of one of these martial arts, and his disciples were his students in the Taika and his students in the, in, the, in the military art. So as well as doing Vicar, they trained. They, they had to be very good uh, riders. They had to be very good swordmen. And they had to be very good riflemen. Amazing. And they were always prepared to fight. There were, there were people who were always prepared to defend the territory, the dean, and the and the and the people we have this history and this this french invasion this kind of gradual incursion of the french into morocco now what i want to go into in in a little bit more detail is how these sufi tariqas were on the forefront of the resistance against the french invasion and how they did it, and what the consequences and results of their resistance were. So, these Sufi tariqas will um, will face the, the French in the battlefield. They will um, raise armies through the their followers, as well as the most important tribal chiefs of the region, and fight the French militarily. Now. The, I, w I want to mention three instances who I believe they were key for the consequence of this general militarily Sufi jihad. The first was that the Moroccans uh, attacked a few tradesmen, French tradesmen in Casablanca. And the French bombarded Casablanca with uh, warships and this totally destroyed the city. And that was the first important incursion of the French army into Morocco. 
Before that, it was all political, it was all financial, but they didn't have an army in Morocco. The 1907 bombardment of Casablanca allowed the French to step into the Moroccan soil with their armies. It's exactly the same as what the English did in Egypt, in Alexandria. There were a few foreign tradesmen in Alexandria that were killed. The British had warships stationed outside the city and they sent in missiles and they sent in their army. And that was their, that was their justification because these people were killed, right? And it's at that point that Sultan Abdul Hamid II saw that the biggest enemy of the Ottoman Empire were not the Russians who were fighting them, was not the, 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 this one or that one, it was the British. And interestingly, what happened with the British is the British were the ones that eventually had him dethroned, had the, the lands of Palestine taken, and, you know, the, the, the rest is history. I just, I just wanted to draw that parallel of a few people being killed in the city and then that gives them the justification to launch their missiles in and to drop their armies off. Absolutely, absolutely. And that started a big war of expansion of the, of the, of the, of the French in Morocco in the region of the Shawia region. To this war, to defend Casablanca, Moulay Abdel Hafid, who was then the, a newly crowned sultan in Fez, sent his armies and... This Sheikh I mentioned, Sheikh Ma'il Ainain of the south of Morocco, brought his armies also to fight the French in Casablanca. Now, the second big battle I, want, uh, I wanted to, to tell you about was the revolt of the um, tribes around Fez. A, a few years later, in 1911, they all rebelled against the Sultan in Fez. And... That was the perfect excuse for the French to bring their army all the way to the heart of the country and disperse the revolution that was trying to happen there. They also killed a few French men in the city and it was exactly what the French needed to come in. By coming in, they forced the Sultan with their armies to sign the Protectorate Treaty a few months later, at the beginning of 1912, which meant that the Moroccan king could stay and rule as, as a puppet. Um, it was indirect rule, what they call indirect rule. So the Moroccans would still think that the king was the, was the king and all good, but the French were ruling, really, in comparison to direct rule in, in Algeria. Now, so now, as I say, now we have Casablanca, Rabat, the whole surrounding region, and like a tunnel a road all the way to Fez that was French-controlled with their armies. Later the same year, in the south of Morocco, the son of Sheikh Ma'il Ainain, who had fought in the south of Morocco and in Casablanca, his son, Moulay Ahmed al-Hiba, declared a jihad against the French in Marrakesh. Before the jihad, he had gathered the ulama of the south to discuss the situation of the country. And there were three meetings. One of, uh, I, think, I think it was the second or the third meeting in which the Moroccan uh, records record that the representatives of the Darqawis were present at the meeting. And it's very likely, and I have been told, 
that Sheikh Mohammed Al Habib was present there. Now I haven't been able to 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 corroborate it because there's no names given, but he was at the time Sheikh of the Darqawi Tariqa in uh, Fez or, or Meknes. Uh, I don't know if he had moved to Meknes yet. In, on those meetings, it was decided that the most important uh, task for the Sufis and the ulama was to protect the deen. And some other Sufis will go to the mountains and fight and carry on fighting as much as they could. After that meeting, Mulay Ahmed al-Hiba became the leader of the jihad, the emir of the jihad in Marrakesh. And the Sultan had sent him a letter saying that his hands were tied in the city, in, in, in the capital, but he had given him his blessing and his full support to fight. And this was perhaps, uh, as far as I know, the last big Sufi jihad in Morocco, led by uh, Mulay Ahmed al-Hiba, the son of Ma'il Ainain of the, tariq, of the Qadri Tariq. They faced the French, the French were superior in the, um, in the weapons, they had cannons, and the, the Sufi army was almost fully obliterated. They dispersed. Ahmed Hiba retreated to, to the south, carried on fighting until he died. And his brother took over him and carried on fighting in the mountains for a few years. But now, the, what, what is interesting is that from this moment, the French had now come down from both Casablanca and Rabat, creating a triangle of the most important region of Morocco, the center, the heart of the country, now was militarily taken by the French and they had a signed agreement with the Sultan to take over the country. The situation had changed from the beginning, you see. Before that, there, was, there were just invaders coming in, they were fought, and, but now they were kind of the owners of, of the place. But so what, what happens is that the Sufis, as almost a general uh, movement, I would say, uh, because they kind of stopped, and a good example of, of it is Sheikh uh, Mohammed ibn al-Habib, stopped fighting. They did not face the French in the battlefield, and they were not hostile to the French in the cities either. They decided to protect the deen, which was the most important thing they could do, and save and more bloodshed. As you see, these three instances meant that the, 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 the Moroccans were massacred and the French gained more control. So the more the Moroccans fought, the, the, the more control the French uh, could exert and the, the, the further could expand in the country. So by stopping, the Sufis had accepted the situation, had, had accepted the decree and they, they have accepted their reality. So not fighting here was a heroic endeavor. Absolutely. Yeah. The difficult thing was to accept that you were defeated and you couldn't fight. And then you turn to Allah. And that's what the, the Sufis did. The Sufis then went and protected the deen, defended the deen, taught the deen, and turned to Allah in dhikr. And good examples of them were the, the Dua Nasri was recited in every mosque, every household. The, the Wird al-Latif, 
the repetition of the of the, uh, of, of, of Ya Latif a number of times, the Qasida uh, Al Munfarija, the recitation of the, the Shifa of Qadi Iyan in in the in French, it's been recorded by the French that the ulama would sit every morning after or before Fajr to, to recite the Shifa of Qadi Iyan, who's a book of, of the life of the Prophet, as a means of, of asking Allah to liberate them from the French. And, the, and this is how it's recorded in the French archives. But I know from the Nasri Dua that the, the French tried to ban it. I, I also know that. I, I haven't found in the archives anything yet. And these things always take a long time before you actually can discover the evidence of it. Uh, but I don't doubt that they, they, they didn't. I want to ask you, like, what was the like almost the conclusion of all of this? So in like in the 1930s, you see that the 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 Sufi jihad was defeated. The decision was made to accept the destiny, accept Allah's will, accept defeat. What was the result of that? What actually happened from that decision, and where did that take Morocco? You know what happened after the end of the Sufi Jihad from the 1940s onwards? What was the kind of, where does that leave Morocco now? So on, on the one hand, the, the, the Sufis succeeded in, in preserving the, the deen intact. The French had very little to, to do with it. They tried to manipulate the, the curriculums, but they weren't very successful. So the deen was preserved in its purity. What came then, starting in 1936, uh, was a nationalist movement. A nationalist movement meaning a group of young Moroccans who had been exposed to the French teachings, to the French ideas, both from direct contact with the French, but also from the Egyptian Salafi pool of literature into Morocco, and then created the the independence party and moved to to kind of ask the french for the independence through this new political agenda from this new modern kind of democratic point of view the sultan after al hafil who was dethroned by the french the french put his brother uh, mulai yusuf and mulai yusuf a uh, son was uh, Muhammad V, who was a, a young man in 1936, so he was very young. But later on, he became the, the image of this nationalist movement to, to the point that the French didn't really like how much power the, the new sultan was, popular power, uh, the, the new sultan was, was holding, and they decided to exile him. So he is Sultan Muhammad V, the grandfather of the current uh, Sultan, or the current um, King of Morocco. Before he, he went in, in exile, I have been told that he met Shaykh Muhammad ibn al-Habib. And Shaykh Muhammad al-Habib advised him to accept exile. A lot of the Moroccans were against it because it meant, again, a defeat for the Moroccans. It meant that the, 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 the symbol of, 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 
um, the Moroccan freedom was removed. But Sheikh Mohammed Habib said to Muhammad V, go in exile, accept your reality, accept your destiny, and Allah will bring you back the whole country. And Muhammad V accepted his exile, was sent to Madagascar for two years, and then he was returned to Morocco. And, and he had become so powerful, his, everyone followed the Sultan, uh, everyone supported Sultan much more than they supported the, the nationalist independence movement, that the nationalist independence movement beca- became obsolete. It just washed away. Why was uh, King Mohammed V brought back? I think that he, the French realized that when he, was, he, he had left, a new wind of revolt started to happen. People were really upset that he had left and they were not listening to, to, to the French. So they said, well, we can't do without him. We have to bring him back. In, in 1956, Morocco gained its independence from, um, from the French. The monarchy was fully uh, re-established in all its fronts. Then, as I say, the nationalist movement vanished. It, it, no one cared enough about, about the, this political party. And that leads us to, to the king today, who has um, both him and his father really brought back Sufism to the forefront of, of society. They gave them the importance. Uh, the importance it was due to, to, to the Sufis in Morocco and moved away and pushed away that Salafi wind that, that had come, both, as I say, from Egypt and, and in direct contact with the, with, the, with the French. In a way, this is something I wanted to mention earlier, is that uh, the nationalists created um, a narrative that during the protectorate, the Sufis were full collaborators to the French. This was only backed with one example, and was that example of Al-Kitani, who had allied with the French after his father was executed by Sultan. So there was one example of Sufi collaboration who, in the books of history, had become the full narrative. So they have accused of collaboration to every single Sufi person and sheikh that lived in Morocco. They, they lacked that wisdom that the Sufis had. The Sufis accepted reality, and these Salafis did not. Uh, because you mentioned Sultan Abdel Hamid II, uh, how interesting is that Sultan Abdel Hamid wrote that letter to his Shadili Sheikh, I think the letter you sent me, saying he couldn't, he, he wouldn't accept the Zionist proposal and the, and the money that, that came with it. And in a way, he he accepted to be dethroned exactly at the same time as Sheikh Mohammed al-Habib was meeting these people in the south of Morocco and accepting their reality and moving in a different direction than the previous one. The letter is dated the 22nd of September, 1329, or the Hijri calendar, that is, as I checked, that is the 29th night of Ramadan, 1911. So that is the night of Eid of the year 
ذا شيخ محمد الحبيب واز ميتين الشيخ مولاي احمد الهيبه ان ساوث اوف موروكو ان افيو مانث اي جست ا فيو مانث بيفور الهيبه وينت اند فوت ذا 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 فرنش سو this same understanding of this of, of a very similar situation in both extremities of the Mediterranean. Even when you were talking about Moulay Abdul Hafid, the amount of similarities, synchronization, you know, what was being implemented in Turkey and like the history that leads up to Sultan Abdul Hamid and the history that leads up to Muli Abdul Hafid, it's the same thing. It's the same policies. It's the same monetary expansion. It's the same debt trap. It's the same, you know, th- these European bankers saw that the Muslim nations, the Muslim empires, were, were Muslim kingdoms were, were getting weaker. And then they came in and they threw them with debt and threw them with money and crippled them with it. And then they sent in the forces. And then, you know, it was like it's an infiltration. What I'm seeing from this whole thing is the absolute wisdom of the great Shayukh. And in particular, I mean, you mentioned Sheikh Muhammad ibn al-Habib, Rahimullah. And that decision that was made to accept defeat and in the advice that was given to king muhammad v it's like accept the exile accept the destiny and allah will give it all back to you and look what happened i mean when you when you recounted that i didn't i i, I had no idea of this story you know i had no idea of of of, of the history of morocco in this sense i had i had no idea of of the man uh, king muhammad v Allah give him expansion in his tomb. And when you said that, I, I, I got goosebumps because it's it's you know, in accepting the destiny. And it just, it reminds me of, of um, something that I was reading about the, the, the journey, Safar. And the part of the journey, whether that's in a metaphorical sense of, of the journey of life, or in the actual sense of going on a journey and traveling through the world, the journey is fraught with obstacles. But one has to go on the journey. One has to confront the obstacles and deal with the obstacles to go to have a deeper understanding of who you are. And by having a deeper understanding of who you are, having a deeper understanding of the divine, having a deeper understanding of Allah. Muhammad al-Sadis, Muhammad the sixth, the current king, he's loved, I know that. I know he's the king. I know he's reestablished the kind of um, influence of Sufism. Can you just talk a little bit more about him? The, the policy of his father was really to, to rebuild the country because it was about four or five years after the French had left, that Mohammed V passed away and his son took over, Hassan II, and he generated wealth. That was what the, the, the father of the current king did. He generated wealth and generated political strings, diplomacy with, with the rest of the world. It was a new country. From 1956, Morocco became a country it wasn't that before. 
And um, that's where the two things his father did. Muhammad the sixth, what he he has done is, with that wealth that his father gathered, and made, he has developed Morocco into what we know Morocco to be today. He has re-instituted traditional Islamic studies, something that had been a big struggle after the French had left. He has also supported uh, the, the, the Sufi uh, Zawiyas who were struggling. He's brought them back into, 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 so he has raised them up and made them relevant. Because as I say, the nationalist movement prior totally uh, dis- disregarded the Sufis. And I think the, the, the action of the following uh, sultans, uh, both the current king and his father, were to pay back, in a way, that alliance that they previously had, that supported the, the, the Sufis, and making it a normal part of the deen. In Morocco, Sufism is not, is, is not foreign from the study of fiqh, or the study of, of the aqidah, is one of the sciences that is studied in, in the universities, is studied in, in, in throughout the, the lower levels of, of the academic progression of the students. And, and it is still very relevant to everyone's life. Uh, most of the people are part of a tariqa, or their parents are part of a tariqa, or they know that their grandparents were part of a tariqa. But as everything, once modernity pushes in, Unless you are committed to it, 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 it weakens in, 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 in the individual the, the, the interest on, on, on Sufism because it's a traditional thing and modernity is all against tradition. That is what modernity means. It is a fight against the past so that we can progress into a better, in, in inverted comma, a better way of, of, of existing. So uh, just what I'm saying that that new dynamic of, of modernity is what is what is playing a little bit uh, in Morocco at the moment. Mm-hmm. But the people love their king. Yes, yes, undoubtedly. Yeah. Regarding King Mohammed VI, about seven years ago, took the responsibility of looking after Sheikh Mohammed Ibn Al Habib's library that was getting ruined in the Zawiya, was looked after, and the king personally decided to take care of the library and store it in a, a new library that the, the king had opened in, in Meknes, where now the, all Sheikh Mohammed Habib's books and letters are kept. But I think it's, it's relevant that relationship between Sheikh Mohammed and Habib's giving advice to Muhammad V and how his grandson recognized that relationship and looked after Sheikh Mohammed al-Habib's legacy, his, his, his books and, and, and uh, letters that were in the Zawiya. So can I ask you to make a dua for the king of Morocco? Yes. Um, we ask you to, to strengthen and give all the current King Muhammad the sixth needs in these times. Allahumma give him a wisdom that comes from you directly from you. Amen. Give him good advisors. Amen. Give him good support. Amen. Allahumma, we ask you to protect him from 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 the evils of of, of the time. Amen. 
and and grant him the best of this life and and, and the next. I mean, I mean, wa And may his presence be a blessing and a, and an upliftment for the Muslims wherever they are in the world. I don't think there's much I can really say to conclude this episode. It's all contained within it. It's all contained in the narrative. So once again, thank you for listening to this week's episode and we'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you.